Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. This is Eric R. Candle, MD, of Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons, speaking at the Yale School of Medicine's Bicentennial Symposium, Biomedicine in the New Century, on April 28, 2011. Well, thank you, Bob, for a reminder of history. Uh, I'm in, I'm, I've been at Yale for three years, relatively new department chairman, and this uh, uh, bicentennial has been a terrific event that I would recommend based on my experience to all of the department chairs here. Uh, because uh, my business manager got on the case and looked up the history of our department and found at least three endowed chairs that have been appropriated by other departments. <laughs> so it's been a remarkably rewarding uh, experience. And, We'll continue to provide rewards, uh, actually, for all of us. I won't disclose which of the other chairs uh, will be hearing from us soon. Um, actually, uh, to be serious for a moment, um, uh, it's, a, it's a privilege to have a chance to introduce uh, Eric Kandel. Um, I'd like to introduce him the way I met him. The first thing about Eric is the laugh. You exit the elevator when you want to visit him on his floor and you pick it up as soon as the door opens. It goes through walls. It's totally unique. Maybe you'll be lucky and be treated to, uh, to some of it today. You follow it to his office through a rabbit warren of a floor with equipment all around. And you find the scientist, who himself is quite unique, who harbors this really unique laugh. You're welcomed as you walk into his office to an astounding view of the Hudson. But really, what you've entered is Neuroscience Central. And you appreciate that uh, right away. Eric is, is uh, without a doubt, the pope of uh, modern, modern neuroscience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In his early work, he made one of the greatest discoveries in all brain science, which is how memories, uh, the, the fact that memories are stored in synapses, and, um, and uh, how they're stored in terms of uh, changes in their strength uh, and size. This is his early work uh, in the uh, uh, in the organism uh, aplesia. He then went on over uh, several decades to elucidate for us at a cellular, uh, molecular, biochemical level how this process of memory storage occurs, how synapses uh, adjust their very nature, not just their strength, in accord with experience to record that experience. And most recently, uh, he's uh, 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 taught us and continues to teach us how these biochemical states can be encoded in conformational switches of proteins that are related to uh, prions. Now, Eric's force of intellect and personality, uh, apart from his own research, have enduringly transformed Columbia into uh, a powerhouse of neuroscience and infusing uh, virtually every department uh, that's biology related uh, in the university with both enthusiasm and with uh, exceptional uh, faculty, all often captured in their youth. Not dissimilar, in a way, to what George Pilate uh, did at Yale and his historical influence uh, on not just his department, which I'm privileged to chair, but on uh, so much of what goes on here at Yale, uh, but in service of a different field, namely cell biology. Um, Eric has given generations of students uh, his canonical textbook, Principles of Neuroscience, and most recently, uh, a, uh, as it were, popular autobiography and essay uh, on uh, neuroscience, which has rapidly become a must-read for scientists and non-scientists alike. So, uh, Eric, we're honored to have you uh, as the first speaker in our symposium today, a very special symposium, but 
especially privileged to hear you speak first. Thank you. Thank you, Jim, for that marvelous introduction. I, I just wish my parents were alive to hear it. My uh, <laughs> father would have enjoyed it. My mother would have believed it. Um, I think um, I speak for all of the speakers that you've invited by saying it's really a joy to participate in Yale's bicentennial. Uh, the angels in the academic sections of heaven rejoice with particular pride when a great institution carries on for 200 years. Uh, I, I want to begin by saying something about the, the history of, of medicine at Yale. Uh, it is, as many of you probably know, uh, the sixth oldest medical school in the United States. Uh, and that alone is extraordinary. Uh, but what is less known, although if you read the book on the bicentennial that the dean has provided you with, you will rapidly learn that even though it was the sixth oldest medical school, it felt it could not be outdone by the five institutions that it started before it, and it went ahead and granted the first MD degree in the colonies. So let me say a little bit about that. And to do that, I have to put the history of medical education in the United States in perspective. Uh, the first medical school established in the colonies was at the, Uni the University of Pennsylvania in 1765. But the first MD degree granted to somebody who actually went to the medical school and graduated from it, a man by the name of Robert Tucker, was at King's College, later becoming Columbia University, uh, and that was in 1770. But Yale beat into all of this because it gave the first MD degree, and it gave it to a person who not only never attended the medical school, but never even came to the Americas, Daniel Turner. <laughs> in 1723. Uh, now, one could give a whole lecture on this, and I intend to do so. Uh, a century before Yale had a medical school, it awarded the MD degree to this gentleman, a British barber surgeon who not only never attended the school, but never came to the Americas. How did this come about? Um, there were two important components, a request and a bequest. Uh, he wrote to Yale and asked them whether they would give him a medical doctorate. Uh, and he wrote in part, this is the last paragraph of a rather extended letter, if your lordships judge me worthy of the degree of doctor of the Yale Academy and care to transmit it to me as a diploma, I shall accept it not only as a token of your gratitude, but shall consider it an honor as great as if it had been conferred by another even more renowned university. <laughs> Harold Varma, speaking of more renowned, welcome. Uh, and he left a bequest that consisted of 32 volumes, but actually was 25 books, uh, which are really uh, still present in the library. Uh, and uh, had among them several books that he had written, of course, and the very famous Cowper's Illustrated Anatomy of the Human Body, which was the first English textbook which illustrations of the human body. Uh, now, 
this represents a very important tradition within Yale. Yale values scholarship above all, and it values books very deeply. Uh, and at the beginning, what it needed was even more than endowment, was a great library. And simply to remind you, in 1718, this is five years before they granted Turner a degree, they actually gave the whole college to Eli Yale. They changed the name of the college from the collegiate school to Yale College in return for his library. So it was in that spirit uh, that they gave Turner a degree. And in retrospect, we have to say that this is a strategy that has paid off beautifully. Um, 200 years later, the Harvey Cushing John J. Whitney Library is generally considered one of the most magnificent medical libraries in the world. So all of us join in wishing you a happy bicentennial and many, many more books. Uh, let me turn to the topic of my talk, uh, which is on the perpetuation of memory storage. So I would like to consider with you how one remembers something for a long period of time, how you remember your first love experience for the rest of your life. Uh, and let me put memory storage into a bit of a perspective for you. Uh, it's convenient to divide the study of memory into two major parts, uh, explicit memory and implicit memory. Explicit is what you commonly think of a memory. It's a memory for facts and events, for people, places, and objects. And this involves the medial temporal lobe and the hippocampus. This is what HM suffered from. And it has a characteristic feature that if you think of your first love relationship, you have to make a conscious effort to think about it. It requires conscious participation. This is in contrast to implicit memory, which is memory for uh, skills and habits for various kinds of uh, motor skills and perceptual skills, including elementary forms of learning like habituation, sensitization, classical conditioning, and operant conditioning. This involves a family of structures in the brain, the amygdala for emotional memory, the cerebellum for motor memory, and in the simplest cases, which I'm going to refer to, the reflex pathways themselves. And this has the characteristic of not requiring uh, conscious attention. And this is a very interesting memory. For example, uh, de Kooning, when he had advanced Alzheimer's disease, could no longer remember most things in his life, could still paint quite well. And his painting still got millions of dollars when he sold them because he became so skilled that it became almost a reflex. When you and I have a conversation with one another, I speak to you and you listen to me and we presumably understand one another because I hopefully speak grammatical English, I pay absolutely no attention to the grammar in my language. I don't know where the noun is, where the verb is, or even whether there is a noun or a verb in the sense. So grammar has become, in all of our heads, once we mature, an implicit skill. Uh, my colleagues and I have studied this essentially in, in three organisms, but I'm going to mention, I'm sorry, in two organisms, I'm going to mention a third. So we've studied it initially, primarily in the snail, where you can study implicit memory. It doesn't have conscious recall. Uh, and it's very good for cell biological approach. Uh, we made an early attempt with Cal6C, and he's continued with this, to do some work on Drosophila, where you can use genetics to study behavior. And I will tell you at the end about work in mice, where you can combine genetics and circuit analysis to study more complicated memory, memory for, or an explicit memory for space. So let me begin with the plesia. The advantage of a plesia is that you have 100 billion neurons in your brain. That's a lot. 
By contrast, the plesia only has about 20,000 nerve cells. These are collected in clusters called ganglia. Each ganglion has about 2,000 nerve cells. And a single ganglion controls not one, but a whole bunch of different behaviors. So the number of cells committed to a single behavior like can be quite small. In the limit, 100 neurons or less. Not only are there few cells, but the cells are gigantic. They're the largest cells in the animal kingdom. So a cell like this is, is a millimeter in diameter. I used to be able, before I became presbyopic, to see it with my naked eye. Moreover, they're so characteristic in their position and their location pigmentation, you can identify them as unique individuals, give them names, Joe, Jim, David, and return to them in every single animal of the species. In this simple animal with a simple nervous system, we studied the simplest behavior the animal has, a simple withdrawal reflex, like the withdrawal of a hand from a hot object. Um, for the surgeons in the audience, let me simply point out that this is the head of the animal, this is its tail. <laughs> the animal has a respiratory organ called the gill, which is external and is covered by a sheet of skin called the mantle shelf and the siphon. If you apply a weak tactile stimulus to the siphon, you get a very brisk withdrawal of the gill, very much like the withdrawal of a hand from a hot object. Now this simple reflex we found to our astonishment can be modified not by one, but by several different forms of learning, and each of them gives rise to both a short-term and a long-term memory. Sensitization, habituation, classical conditioning, operating conditioning. These are the elementary forms of learning that Pavlov and Thorndike described uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. We focused a lot of our work on sensitization, a form of learned fear, and that's what I'm going to describe to you now. Um, if you scare the hell out of an animal, by giving it a shock to the tail, brrr, like that. You come back and apply a weak tactile stimulus to the siphon of the kind that you did before, producing a modest reflex response. It now will produce a very powerful reflex response because the animal has been aroused by this noxious stimulus and therefore all of its reflexes are enhanced. The withdrawal itself lasts for seconds, but the memory of that withdrawal carries on for periods varying from Hours to weeks, depending on the number of reinforcing stimuli. Practice makes perfect, even in the snails. We worked out the neural circuit of this behavior. There are 24 sensory neurons that pick up from the siphon skin. They make direct connections to motor neurons. They connect directly to the gills. So a very important part of the reflex is a monosynaptic connection between the sensory neurons and the motor neurons. Moreover, these sensory neurons tile the siphon so that if you touch just a single spot on the siphon, which we do, you can limit the activation to four to six sensory neurons. There are also inhibitory and excitatory interneurons that modulate this reflex. Because there are so few cells, you can not only study it in the intact animal, in the open preparation, but you can take out individual sensory neurons, individual motor neurons, put them in culture, and you can simulate the whole learning process. If you also include the modulatory circuit, which is critical for learning. When you stimulate the tail, you activate serotonergic cells, very similar to the serotonergic and dopaminergic cells in your brain. They act on the sensory neurons, including on their terminals, and they can regulate the strength of synaptic connections. If you give a single tail shock, which produces a memory which lasts for minutes, you produce a transient functional strengthening. But if you give five repeated tail shocks, you produce a memory that lasts for days. This leads to alterations in gene expression, 
involving CREB prominently as a transcription factor, <clears throat> and most surprisingly, a growth of new synaptic connections. So if you remember anything about this lecture, in fact, if you remember anything about the symposium, you will come out of this symposium with a different head than you walked into. In fact, you could argue that the major function of Yale Medical School is to change the brains of the people that come there, and Turner's perfect testimony to that. So let me give you in very simple terms our molecular understanding of what happens. So this is a sensory neuron, serotonergic cell, tail shock, and this is the motor neuron. If you provide a single tail shock, you activate these serotonergic cells, they release serotonin, they activate a serotonin-sensitive receptor coupled to an adenocyclase that increases the level of cyclic GMP, activates the cyclic GMP-dependent protein kinase, which phosphorylates proteins in the presynaptic terminal, leading to an enhancement of transmitter release from the presynaptic terminal. This is the mechanism of short-term memory for the Gilbert-Thoreau reflex for sensitization. If you give repeated stimuli, we showed about 20 years ago in imaging experiments with Roger Tsien that the catalytic subunit translocates to the nucleus. In so doing, it recruits another kinase, the MAP kinase, and they carry out a double function. The MAP kinase removes a repressor on long-term memory. CREP2 and cyclic AMP-dependent protein kinase activates an activator, CREB1. Now you may say, gee, this is funny. Having an inhibitory constraint in long-term memory, why would you want that? Well, the fact is, lots of things that you learn, lots of things that you encounter are trivial. You don't want to put them into long-term memory. Lots of things that happen in life are miserable. You don't want to remember them forever if you can possibly forget them. So it has to be an important event to get rid of the repressor, activate the activator, which then gives rise to the growth of new synaptic connections. This has turned out to be a fairly general solution. In almost every situation one has looked at, long-term memory differs from short-term memory involving transcription, almost invariably involving CREB as the key factor, although sometimes not the only factor, and giving rise to the growth of new synaptic connections. And that has raised a real problem in the cell biology of neurons. If, in fact, long-term memory involves transcription, therefore the nucleus, which is an organelle that is in principle in contact with every synapse of a neuron, does that mean all the thousand synapses that a neuron makes are necessarily converted to the long-term form every time you form a long-term memory? Or can you have a transcription-dependent process that is nonetheless synapse-specific? And this is a question that Kelsey Martin addressed when she was in my lab. She developed a new culture system rather than culturing a sensory neuron with a single motor neuron. She cultured it with two motor neurons quite far apart so she could puff on serotonin on one set of connections without touching the others. Excuse me. She can now puff on serotonin. If she puffed it on once, she got a transient facilitation. At this set of connections, she saw nothing at that set of connections. Not surprising, we had known that short-term facilitation was synapse-specific. But when she gave five pulses, she produced a persistent facilitation that lasted days um, that involved transcription. She could block it with an anti-CREB antibody, but there was nothing at the other synapse. That clearly showed you can get a synapse-specific, transcription-dependent, long-term facilitation that did not involve other synapses of the neuron. And raised the question, how does this come about? Clearly, a signal is going back to the nucleus, CREB is activated. Does that mean the gene products are only sent to this set of terminals 
where the signal initiated, or do gene products go to all terminals, but only those that are marked, perhaps by a short-term process, can use those gene products productively. So she examined this in the following experiment. She gave five pulses of serotonin to one set of terminals, nothing to the other, and she produced long-term facilitation, so this is hours, and this led to an almost doubling of the synaptic strength, and there was about 80% increase in the number of synapses. Nothing at the other branch. She now repeated the experiment, and in addition to applying five pulses here, she gave a single pulse to the other branch. And she found she now captured in reduced form long-term synaptic facilitation in the other branch. So this is about a 50% facilitation, about 35% increase in number of varicosities. So this is an interesting finding. So clearly gene products were being shipped all over. What was the nature of the marking signal that allowed it to be captured? So she repeated the experiment. She gave five pulses here, a single pulse there, and now she included an inhibitor, the cyclic AMP-dependent protein kinase. And when she did that, she blocked the capture completely. So clearly one part of the marking signal is phosphorylation by PKA. But then she did an even more thoughtful experiment. She applied five pulses here, a single cult, uh, pulse here, and she gave an inhibitor of protein synthesis. She applied this locally so it only affected the synapse. Now she had known from Ozzy Stewart's work that there are at synapses ribosomes and machinery for local protein synthesis, but we didn't know exactly what the function of that was. And she found, to her surprise, that when she gave inhibitor, of protein synthesis locally. She had the capture, she had the growth of new synaptic connections, but this was not maintained. So 24 hours later, when you already have full-blown long-term facilitation, that was fine, but over the next 48 hours, it collapsed. So she studied this more. She used another inhibitor, rapamycin, which is more selective, gave five pulses here, one pulse there, and rapamycin, uh, inhibitor of local protein synthesis. She saw the facilitation, but it did not persist. She wondered, does this also happen at the site of initiation, where you have the really large facilitation? And she saw that it does. If you give five pulses together with rapamycin, beautiful facilitation, not maintained. Now, the interesting thing which I'm going to show you is that these synapses, which have grown out, those same synapses retract unless they're appropriately maintained by local protein synthesis. I like this experiment so much, I'm going to show it to you once again. We're now going to look at 24 hours, we're going to look at 72 hours, at site of initiation and site of capture. So this is the site of initiation, and this is the site of capture. So at 24 hours, after giving five pulses here and a single pulse here, you have nice facilitation in the site of initiation and nice growth, and even at the site of capture, you have perfectly nice facilitation, reduced, and growth. But at 72 hours, where you still maintain the facilitation of growth at the site of initiation that never saw an inhibitor of local protein synthesis, at the site of capture, where you inhibited protein synthesis, you lose the facilitation and you lose the growth. This is just restating what I told you before. So this raised the question, how does this come about? How do you regulate local protein synthesis and how do you maintain this? And this is where Cal6C came along, and almost everything I'm going to tell you in Aplysia derived from his thinking on the problem. He argued, look, if you're going to send messenger RNAs to all the processes, you want them to be inhibited in some ways. You don't want the messages to be active. 
Uh, otherwise, they might be promiscuously activated at some inappropriate synapse. And one thing we do not want at this bicentennial is inappropriate, promiscuous activation of messenger RNA. So he argued, look, the example of this had arisen with Joel Richter. He had shown that in maternal uh, 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 RNA, in, in oocytes, Cenopus oocytes, you in fact have messages with a short poly A tail, but in the three prime UTR, you have a six nucleotide sequence called the cytoplasmic polyvinylation element uh, that binds a protein called the cytoplasmic polyvinylation element binding protein. And this recruits the poly A polymerase machinery which then leads to the cytoplasmic polyvinylation, lengthening of the poly A tail, which now makes the message capable of translation, giving rise to a protein. So Kausik asked, does this kind of a protein exist in the plesia? And he found a developmental isoform very similar to which Joel Richter had described, but he found a novel form of CPB which had never previously been described. And it differed from the conventional form in three ways. It is neuron-specific. You do not find this in other tissues of the body, while the developmental isoform is found in every tissue of the body, including the brain, number one. Number two, it is not phosphorylated by the aurora kinase. It is activated by serotonin. It leads to an increase in the level of expression, protein synthesis. And finally, it has a peculiar N-terminal that I'm going to come to in a moment. So Kausik explored this. He applied a single pulse of serotonin and saw that, in fact, CPB was increased in its level of expression just at the point where the serotonin was applied. This shows you the increase in the level of expression of the protein. This is blocked by amatine. It's blocked by rapamycin. And it's restricted to the point in which serotonin is applied. He then developed an antisense oligonucleotide, fused it to a TAT peptide, which allows it to be carried across the membrane and applied it to one synapse and not to the other. So we have a control and we have the experimental. Here he blocks CPB, here he does not. And you see this is the control side and this is the side in which the antisense oligo was applied. And you see it acts exactly like inhibitors of local protein synthesis. The facilitation is established not, but not maintained. Moreover, you don't need CPB active for just a short period of time. For as long as we've been able to go, and now we've gone substantially beyond 48 hours, you need the active presence of CPB. So that raised the question, what keeps this going? What is responsible for the persistent action of CPB? And he was, of course, earlier struck with a peculiar N-terminal. The N-terminal of a plesia, this is the first 160 amino acids, Almost 50% of the residues are polar, glutamine and asparagine. A number of people, uh, 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 Reed and, and uh, Susan Lindquist, had earlier described that uh, domains of this sort are found in yeast proteins that have prion-like properties. And I showed two well-studied prion proteins. Their domains here. This is the aplysia domain. And Kalsic immediately pulled out the drosophila or to uh, uh, RA and showed that it had a very similar uh, set of polar residues. This differs dramatically from the typical aplysia proteins, which have a lot of charged residues and very few polar residues. Uh, well, what's so interesting about prion proteins? Well, there are three properties, as you probably know very well. They can exist in two conformational states, monomeric and aggregated. Only one of these is active the aggregated form, and the aggregated form is self-perpetuating. 
So it can interact with the inactive form, the monomeric form, cause it to undergo a conformational change so you can either be recruited to the aggregate or form aggregates on its own. So Kausik asked the question, is this also true for Plisius CPB? He developed an assay that he put into yeast. He, he fused CPB, he expressed CPB in yeast cells together with the reporter construct which had the CP element to which it normally binds fused to beta-gal, and he expressed this in yeast cells, and he saw most cells were blued, and this was carried forward generation to generation, but occasional cells were white, they were carried forward from generation to generation, but there was an interconversion at, at slow rates, but significantly faster than spontaneous uh, mutation rates between the blue cells and the white cells and the white cells and the blue cells. So this suggested that this was binding, and this may be the aggregated form, and this is the diffused form, and he wanted to visualize this. So he, he fused CPB to GFP and visualized it, and he saw that in the white cells it was diffuse, as if it might be soluble, a monomeric form, and the blue cells it formed aggregates, consistent with it being the aggregated form. And so he wanted to see whether or not you could trigger the conformational change in the soluble form so it becomes the aggregated form. And he carried out an experiment which is well known in yeast, which is called cytoduction, in which you can use mutant strains of yeast in which you can have cytoplasmic fusion without nuclear fusion. So he fused the blue cells to the white cells in a situation in which you don't have any nuclear fusion. And he saw that the blue protein moved into the white cells and converted all of the white protein to blue. This simply shows you what the phenotypes, blue cells made it to white cells, become blue. So this suggested to us a model that we're still exploring to the moment. You five pulses of serotonin, you set up a retrograde signal to the nucleus, it activates CREB. Gene products, both proteins and messenger RNAs are sent to all the terminals. The marked terminals use the proteins immediately and they use the messages with a delay. The marking signal consists of at least two components, PKA and activation of PI3 kinase, which Kasich was found was essential for activating the translation of CPB. We posit without any evidence whatsoever that CPB initially is in the monomeric soluble form. And then it becomes transformed in ways we don't yet understand in the plesia, but I will show you later on. We have some insight in mice to become the aggregated form. The aggregated form is a form that binds to the CP element, gives rise to cytoplasmic polydenylation, gives rise to translation, gives rise to the uh, 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 messages, and gives rise to the proteins necessary for the stabilization uh, of the anatomical changes. So this seemed to us a very interesting problem because it suggested to us that we might be dealing with a new class of prion proteins. Uh, all proteins, prions that have been looked at before, are not regulated in any known fashion, certainly not by physiological signals, number one. Uh, and number two, uh, when they move into the aggregated form, they either kill the cell or they become dead proteins. This was the first suggestion that number one, these prion-like proteins could respond to physiological signals, in this case serotonin, and once they were in the aggregated form, they did something good for the cell. They had a functional purpose. So we wanted to see, you know, this is also applied when we look at CPB neurons. 
Does CPB behave in neurons like it does in yeast, and is it essential for perpetuation? So the first thing we did is overexpress CPB in sensory neurons, uh, fuse the GFP, and you could see very discrete aggregates form. And if you chopped off the prion domain, you lost that. You can take the prion domain and put it on the developmental isoform, which normally does not form aggregates, but the rest of the coding sequence is almost the same, and now it will form aggregates. Does serotonin modulate aggregate formation? This is the expression of uh, CPB fused to GFP, carried over a period of 36 hours, and we now do the same thing after having given pulses of serotonin. You see a dramatic increase in the number of aggregates. Is it important for facilitation? We carried out a number of experiments. I'll only show you one. Calcic developed an antibody that was specific to the aggregated form. This is the control. This is in which the antibody was ejected, and it selectively blocked the maintenance of long-term facilitation. So this suggested that CPB consists in aggregated form, and that aggregate form is a prerequisite for long-term facilitation, and caused us to ask, uh, is this also important in memory? So Kausik got interested in flies while he was still in my lab, worked with Gary Struhl, began to show that, in fact, the uh, fly homologue is very, very similar to Aplysia in many dimensions. And we were about to do behavioral experiments when we got scooped by a very beautiful experiment by Barry Dixon, who read the Aplysia papers. He asked the question that I posed in the first time. Do you remember your first love experience for the rest of your life? Uh, now, most of the gentlemen in the audience probably don't have an experience that I have. But if an inexperienced male is rejected by an experienced female, Jim, I'm sure this never happened to you. He remembers that for the rest of his life. And this holds true in flies as well as in people. And Barry examined this. He looked at short-term memory in flies, both wild-type flies and flies that had one or both alleles knocked out of CPB and flies in which only the prion domain was knocked out and nothing else. Here is a wild-type fly showing long-term memory, knock out a single allele, long-term memory is reduced, knock out both alleles, long-term memory is gone, knock out only the prion domain, and most of long-term memory is gone. Kalsik has continued with this and even shown more that CPB has very similar functions. And this caused us to turn to mice and ask, does it also apply to explicit memory storage in mice? Uh, you probably know mice, it's very easy to study spatial memory. Uh, they have very strong spatial memory. And as you know, the hippocampus is involved in it. And hippocampus gives rise to changes in synaptic strength called long-term potentiation, and one can explore all these things. The first thing we looked is what sort of isoforms of CPB are there in the mouse? Are there in mammals in general? And we found that there's not simply one, but there are four, which in a moment of great creativity we called CPB1, 2, 3, and 4. And CPB1 is the developmental isoform, which we studied with Joel Richter, and 2, 3, and 4 are new forms. Of these, on various tests, we found that CPB3 is closest to the aplysia form. It has nowhere the polar residues that, that you see in invertebrates, but this is true for mammalian prions in general. It has 18% of the first 150 amino acids uh, that, uh, that have uh, polar residues. Uh, we popped this into yeast, and we saw 
Unlike other CPBs, CPB3 form clusters very similar to the Aplysia CPB. Moreover, when we looked at it in hippocampal neurons in culture, we applied the excitatory transmitter glutamate, we saw clusters formed in areas that appeared to be uh, postsynaptic dendrites, uh, dendritic spines. We then examined in detail where CPB3 located using a presynaptic marker to localize it to synapses. We used synaptophysin, and you can see very clearly CPB3, this is synaptophysin, they're in beautiful opposition to one another. We were able to identify some of the targets of CPB3, which include things that have been early identified, but um, Malina, Rajan, Nicole, and others as being critical for long-term memory in the mouse, GLUA1, GLUA2, and Pomelio. We now have generated a number of mice, and we're still studying them. This is, we've not finished with them. We've studied in detail with Joel Richter and knockout of CPB1 that has practically no phenotype. We've studied a dominant negative of one to four, which does have a phenotype, but this knocks out all four of them. And we're now just beginning to analyze a CPB3 knockout and a knock-in without a prion domain. Uh, we have some preliminary data on the, the CPB3 knockout, which I'll show you in a moment. If you look at a knockout of all four, you find a clear deficit in the late phase of LTP and a clear memory deficit. We're just beginning to analyze the knockout of CPB3, but from the physiology alone and the behavior, it's very early, looks somewhat similar. Much of the phenotype that we see with a, a dominant negative inhibition of all four can be accounted for by knockout of this single gene. Now, clearly, we're dealing with a molecule that is explosive, and we wondered how could it be regulated. And due to the work of Elias Papadopoulos in my lab, uh, we've encountered an interesting mechanism of its regulation. Uh, what Lies found is that CPB3 is regulated by neurolyze, which is ubiquitin ligase. And he originally found that CPB3, uh, I'm sorry, he was not studying CPB3, he was studying ubiquitin ligase in Drosophila. And he found that overexpressing this particular ubiquitin ligase, neurolyze, enhanced memory in Drosophila. So he came to my lab uh, being interested in studying neuralized, and I really had no interest in neuralized, but Elias was a very bright guy, and I thought if he hangs around the lab sooner or later, he will get convinced by others to study CPB, and he didn't have to get convinced. He found that CPB3 is in fact a target for neuralized. Ubiquitin ligase often involved in degradation, but also can be involved in the activation of proteins by monoubiquitation. And he found that CPB3 is activated by neuralized through ubiquination. And this is the model we're using. I show you at, at the first point how we think about it, and then I'm trying to provide some of the data that with this model is based upon. Um, neuralized turns over very rapidly in the basal state, and CPB3 is inhibited, is in fact a repressor of translation in the basal state. When you activate the synapse, you slow down the turnover of neuralized, it translocates and becomes physically associated with CPB3, and it does it through the prion domain of CPB3. It leads to the monoubiquitation, that leads to the recruitment of the uh, polypolymerase complex, uh, the polydenylation complex, leads to the polydenylation, leads to the translation of pomelio glua one or glua two, and the maintenance of synaptic strength. Let me show you some of the data this is based upon. Uh, Elias found that neuralized is co-localized together with CPB3 in dendrites, 
<clears throat> and both of them, both CPB3 and neuralized in apposition to synaptophysin. So this is the synaptophysin, which I showed you before. This is neuralized in relationship to uh, synaptophysin. This is CPB3 in relationship to synaptophysin. They similar have a relationship to them. If you look at them together, you see that neuralized and CPB3 are superimposable on one another. Moreover, they physically associate. If you do, an ant if you do a pull-down experiment from these cells with anti-CPB3 uh, antibody, you pull down both proteins. But if you knock out the prion domain, you no longer have an interaction between CPB3 and neuralized. So the prion domain is critical for the interaction. He now generated two lines of mice that overexpress neuralized. And he saw that in both of them, CPB3 was increased in a graded fashion. So this is the line in which there's weaker expression, this line in which there's greater expression. So there was a graded increase in CPB3, while CPB1 and CPB4 were not affected. So this is a tet line. This is completely reversible. <laughs> he then looked at the uh, targets, uh, the known targets of CPB3, pamiloglua 2 and glua 1, and similarly found a graded increase in them. And this simply shows you that it's completely reversible when you give docs. <clears throat> and then in order to get a little bit more direct evidence, although this is by no means a perfect experiment, he made it, these neuralized overexpressing mice, to see whether or not this connection is causal with the mice that express the dominant negative inhibitor for all four. So the ideal thing which we, you know, in the process of doing is mating it to the knockout of, of just CPB3 alone, but this is a dominant negative of all four. <clears throat> Under those circumstances, you in fact find you reverse the action of neuralize. So everything that you saw in control comes back. So it acts as if you're not overexpressing neuralize. So this is consistent with the fact that neuralize is acting through, through CPB3. If you looked at physiology of the neuralized overexpressing mice, you saw that they have enhanced LTP, and the mice are absolutely brilliant. So by the third training trial, they're way ahead of controls. They remember much better in the long term. So at day five, the, uh, the uh, wild-type mice have caught up, but the mutants are still significantly ahead. After day 12 of training, all the animals have, catch, have caught up. But if you now wait a few days without further training, Again, the long-term memory of the neuralized overexpressing mice is enhanced. This holds not only for spatial memory, for other memories as well. Long-term memory that involves the hippocampus is significantly enhanced. Moreover, in the neuralized overexpressing mice, you see an increase in branch structure, an increase in number of dendritic spines. So this suggested to us a very direct test. I mean, our model is that neuralized needs to the money, physically interacts with its prion domain, <coughs> with, uh, with the prion domain of CPB3, the neuralized interacts with the prion domain of CPB3, leads to the monoubiquitation of CPB3, and it's the monoubiquitated CPB3 that recruits the polypolymerase machinery, et cetera, et cetera, and is responsible for the maintenance of synaptic connections. So he tested this in hippocampal cultures, carrying out all the critical experiments, seeing whether or not a CPB3 just monoubiquinated would be able to mediate uh, the long-term process. <clears throat> so when he looked in the control case, he saw these are hippocampal neurons in culture. He saw a certain number of dendritic branches. If you now express CPB3, which in its basal state is a repressor, you lost some of those dendritic branches. If you express neuralized, 
which in principle allows monobiquination, you increase the number of dendritic spines. If you got rid of the prion domain of CPB3, you lost the increase in growth. If you got rid of the ligase uh, domain in neuralized, you also lost it. But if you take CPB3 and just monoubiquinate it, do nothing else and express it in hippocampal neurons, you get a very nice growth of synaptic connections. So this leads to sort of several conclusions. One that I think the evidence is becoming reasonably good, uh, although by no means completely uh, convincing as yet, that there is a new class of prions emerging from Aplysia CPB, uh, Drosophila ORP2B, and the mouse CPB3. I should say that Susan Lindquist has, uh, in the past year, taken the Aplysia CPB and studied it extensively in yeast, showing it gives rise to strains every single feature of yeast prions she's been able to uh, duplicate uh, with the Aplysia CPB. Um, so we think this is a new type of prion, a functional prion, that it may not be uniquely used for learning. It might be used in other contexts as well, uh, perhaps in addiction, in development, uh, other things that require long-term maintenance. And it's two distinct. The features which I mentioned to you before <coughs> is that serotonin, a physiological signal, converts it from the monomeric to the aggregated form, and that the aggregated form is perpetuating and functioning. And finally, that this is clearly a highly regulated process, and we're just beginning to see the nature of the regulation. I did not describe to you uh, Priya Rajasu, an MD-PhD student's work in my lab, that has shown that it is regulated by, by a particular microRNA, uh, the aplysia form. In the mouse, I showed you that CPB3 is activated by neuralized through ubiquination. We now have preliminary evidence that it is repressed by sumorelation, de-aggregated by sumorelation. Uh, so this really, uh, I think, has turned out to be an extremely interesting example of fact that it contributes importantly to the stabilization of long-term memory. And let me simply end by thanking my colleagues. This work was started by Kelsey Martin. The Aplysia work was completely carried out by Cal6C, and the mouse work largely by, uh, by Elias Papadopoulos. He had help from Pietro Follett and Luana Frentini, and also from Ferdinando and Martin. Uh, Susan Lindquist helped us with our Plesia studies, and we're in contact with her all the time. Wayne Hendricks and Anne McDermott helped us with structural studies. We have reason to believe that these functional prions have a different structure than conventional prions. We have reason to believe that they do not form beta sheets. They form coil coils, and we now have some preliminary evidence to sort of support that, but we've got a long way to go on that. Um, and we collaborated with CPB1 and Joel Richter, and thank you very much. Eric R. Kandel, MD, was one of the 15 illustrious scientists who delivered lectures to a capacity crowd at Yale School of Medicine at a symposium celebrating the school's bicentennial in April 2011.